There has been a lot written about a vegetable-forward diet. It's hard to argue that it isn't a healthy way of eating. We discuss the special issues of being diabetic and eating vegan. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Jackie Nugent, author of the Plant-Based Diabetes Cookbook. She's a trained chef and nutritionist, author of six cookbooks. Welcome, Jackie. Thanks so much for having me, Liz. So I'm looking forward to this conversation because I have probably every misconception about eating with diabetes as everybody else. So you'll get to correct me and maybe set some people straight to begin with. So one of the things that I think of when I think about plant-based eating is that you're mostly, everything you're eating is is carbohydrates. And It has other nutrients in it. I don't think it's just straight carbs, but it isn't something that you would pick to be paleo or something like that because it is so carb-based. And I've always understood that carbs were kind of the problem with having diabetes. So please explain to me how you can balance being plant-based and have diabetes. Okay. Well, this, it's an excellent question and it's something that is not easily explained, but I will try to make it easy. (laughs) But yes, you are correct. When plant-based eating is predominantly carbohydrate, the way most people are eating plant-based foods, it doesn't have to be, but in general, yes, it's going to be higher in carbs, but most eating plans are going to be predominantly carbs. So it's not going to be that different in terms of the overall carb intake, depending on how the foods that you choose. Okay. But there are a couple things to keep in mind. One is what are those carbs that you are eating? Are they quality carbs? So for instance, if they have a lot of soluble fiber with them, for instance, oats is an excellent example of a food that's high in carbs, but it has a lot of soluble fiber. So when you have that soluble fiber, that's going to be beneficial for someone with diabetes or managing their blood sugar. So it's really about the type of carbohydrates you're eating, and then making sure you're spreading them out throughout the day and not eating like a big, huge bowl of pasta for dinner kind of thing. So that's the beginning of that. And then if you, I won't get into all the nitty gritty of the science, but just kind of an overall gist of the research that's on plant-based eating and diabetes. There are three main results from those studies. And one is plant-based eating for people with diabetes you have a better chance of lowering your A1C level. That's your blood sugar over like a three month period of time. Like what is your blood sugar or blood glucose doing? So that's an excellent indicator of how well you're managing diabetes. So that is better managed. Your blood cholesterol is better managed and people who have diabetes tend to have a higher risk for heart disease. So that's a plus. 
And, and your weight tends to be better managed as well when you are eating plant-based. And when you are, when you have a healthier weight, people with type two diabetes tend to have a better managed blood sugar levels. So all three of those, the science backs it up. And then of course, it's the personal choice of what types of carbohydrates you are eating within that meal plan. That's going to make a big difference. Okay. You talked about soluble carbohydrates, uh, soluble fiber. Tell us a little bit about good carbohydrates and better carbohydrates. I'm not going to say bad. I'm just going to say good and better. (laughs) Yeah, and we'll stay away from that word. I think the most part is trying to eat the most wholesome choices. So without getting into like all the nuances of the carbohydrates, I think it just think about it as a whole food. So for instance, when you're choosing fruits, think about eating the whole fruit and not drinking the juice. Hmm. Or when eating your vegetables, I mean, I guess you could kind of think of the same way, but vegetables are vegetables. So all vegetables are great, but especially the non-starchy vegetables. So for instance, zucchini is probably going to be, it's going to be lower in carbs than if you chose a potato. A potato is fine, but you have to plan for the additional carbohydrates that you're going to be getting from that potato. So it's making those not more non-starchy vegetable choices as opposed to the starchier vegetable choices. And then when it comes to grains, it's thinking about, again, those wholesome grains. So whole wheat bread as opposed to a white bread and whole grain pasta as opposed to a white pasta. And, and there's even like the the pulse-based pastas that have both your, that have your protein and your carbohydrate, as well as all of that fiber that goes along with that. So, so basically within each of the categories that you have carbohydrates, there are going to be wiser choices than the others. So what, what I noticed in your cookbook and in making some of the recipes, which are delicious, by the way, thanks. I I was looking at some things like plant-based milk or plant-based yogurt. So those things then are are more processed especially today. Like I'm of Sicilian extraction and my grandmother used to make almond milk because that was something that she just did. Now she didn't eat it instead of milk. She just that was its own thing. And so if she was going to make almond milk, then we would all, you know, get to benefit, have the benefit of tasting it and eating it. And then she would sometimes pour in a little bit of Marsala wine, sweet Marsala wine to make it really (laughs) special. And, but, you know, it wasn't processed with chemicals or anything. It was just a mechanical process to make almond milk. But today, if you chose almond milk off of the shelf in the refrigerator section of your grocery store, it's going to have stabilizers in it and all kinds of things to make it have the right mouthfeel to be as close to cow's milk as possible and that sort of thing. So is that part of it okay? Or do you have to make your own almond milk or how do you how do you balance that? No, you don't. <laughs> Yeah, you don't have to make your own almond milk unless you want to, of course. But there are, here again, it's kind of like the wholesome choices. There are more wholesome choices like for an almond milk on the markets than others. So some of them will have the stabilizers, which I 
think are fine, like a gum or a stabilizer. I, I don't um, discriminate against those where I, I um, kind of draw the line is when um, you add some artificial ingredients or um, when things become less like something that you're going to get from the earth. So the more wholesome you can get it, the better. So there are some almond milks that are just almond and water and maybe a little bit of a sea salt. Um, but there, you have to hunt for them. So it's making those, reading all those labels to make sure you're choosing the wiser choice. And then um, if you do only have a couple options and you don't have a choice of one of the more, the almond milks or another plant milk that's in their most natural state, then look to see what those ingredients are. Because a lot of times those ingredients are just vitamins and minerals, but they look like strange science scientific uh -huh. ingredients, but it might just be a vitamin D and a calcium and other vitamins and minerals that to make it more like cow's milk. Mm -hmm. So if you are trying to use it as a replacement for cow's milk, that might not be a bad idea to, to choose one that has some of those nutrients. Yeah. Well, I, I can see that. I, I have a, a quick almond milk substitute that I make with a tablespoon or two of almond butter that just has nothing in it, not even salt and water. And you whiz that up in a blender or a food processor or something like that. And you have instant almond milk. And oh, I love it. I got to have to try that. I haven't tried that before. And you can just make as much as you need. So if you aren't going to be drinking almond milk all the time, but you need a cup for something that you're cooking, that gives it to you right away. You don't have to go buy some and then have it in the refrigerator that you're not drinking or whatever. And, and you can make the amount you need. If you only need half a cup, then you only have to make half a cup. And that way you don't have any left over. And it, it's, it tastes like almond milk because it's just right. almonds and water, which is what almond milk is. And it, it, it's, it, it definitely needs to be used right away because you know, almond milk, you take the solids out when you're making it from scratch with actual almonds. And obviously you're not taking the solids out of this, but it, it does work. And so I suggest it. Oh, I love it. I'm going to try that. <laughs> so, all right, let's, let's talk about some of these, some of these other things that, that came up to me. So let me ask you about, about your own diet um, you you know looking at your uh, your work in general it appears to be very very vegetable forward and so do you live a vegan life or do you are you a flexitarian or whatever you call a person who sort of makes exceptions for this and this like i know that i could never i i always thought i'll actually have overcome this a little bit but i i always thought that i if i were vegan i could never give up cheese i could give up almost anything else but not cheese <laughs> and i still kind of feel that way it's like okay i need cheese today and i'm going to go 3 months and not have cheese but then i need to have cheese especially Parmesan. And the second cheese I need is blue cheese it has to be a good gargonzola. So if I'm going to eat cheese, it's going to be good cheese, but, <laughs> it's, but you know, but that I can go a long time without eating it. It's just when I want it, I eat it. So how about yourself? I'm very hard to label. 
people. So <laughs> I call myself plant forward because uh -huh. I think it kind of encompasses everything. But generally speaking at home, I, I'm a vegan, but I don't tend to use that word because it's really a vegan is based on a lifestyle and not an eating style. Mm -hmm. So it's, it means no leather kind of thing, which I probably have almost no leather, but I don't have zero leather. So oh. I might have one pair of shoes that have leather in it. So I don't classify myself at, at, at all as vegan, but that's kind of how people perceive me when they see what I eat at home and how I cook when I'm out that's when I let myself have cheese and eggs. Mm -hmm. So I want to have, I'm in, I'm in New York. So I want to have my occasional slice of New York pizza and mm -hmm. I want the real thing. And um, I want a birthday cake uh, occasionally, and that's going to have an egg in it generally. So, so I eat those things. So it's kind of like outside of my home, I'm more like a lacto ovo vegetarian. Mm -hmm. So in general, I just say I'm plant forward and kind of call it a day. Yeah. I'm a, I'm, I'm probably a little bit more just vegetarian than that. I I live in this place where, you know, crabs and shrimp and all of that just come right out of the water, practically feet from where I live. And so it's always so fresh and good. So I will eat shrimp now and then and crab, but I'm I'm pretty vegetable forward. I like that. Yeah, vegetable forward. And are you eating that way for health or because of ethical reasons or a combination of things? It's really a combination of things, but I think it probably all stems back from how I was raised. I, I My background is actually 50% um, Lebanese. So mm -hmm. I grew up on um, a lot of very meaty Lebanese dishes, actually. So I think I got my fill of meat. Kibbe, kibbe, <laughs> like, yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah kibbe, including the raw stuff. Yes, uh -huh. I lived on on raw kibbe, kibbe night. And I, so I think maybe partly I started to eat more plant-based in college because that's, I wanted to do whatever my mom said not to do. So she's, <laughs> I think initially that's kind of how it started, but ultimately I then became a dietitian and I learned about the benefits of, of plants and beans and nuts and seeds and everything else. And I'm like, okay, this is a really, it's a healthier way to eat. So let me try doing this. And then I was actually, I just quote unquote vegetarian for a while, but then I went to culinary school and I'm like, okay, if I'm going to do culinary school properly, I'm going to have to try some of these foods that I'm eating. So, so during culinary school, I was kind of a partial vegetarian and I had to actually do taste of, of my meat dishes or whatever else I was eating. But then I swung back to being mostly plant-based after that because of a few reasons. One, I think I, I'm always conscientious of, of animal welfare. So that's kind of part of my being. And, and I actually have a side business that's a pet food business. So, so I'm very into animal welfare, but besides that, my dad had type two diabetes. So that's what kind of inspired my starting writing diabetes cookbooks to begin with. My very first one I wrote because there was nothing on the market at the time. I, I don't remember how many years ago my first cookbook came out, but it was called The All Natural Diabetes Cookbook. And I wrote it because there was nothing natural out there. Like everything was like, I'm aging myself, but sweet and low, for instance, yeah. was yeah. like, or some type of artificial sweetener was in everything. And I'm like, I don't, my dad is, has this health issue and I don't want him to eat less healthful. And it seems like 
any diabetes books out there weren't focused on what you can add to your eating plan to make it better, but what you take away from it or substitute with. So, mm-hmm. so I wrote that because for him, but basically then for everyone else with, with diabetes. And then I'm like, just because I have a family history of diabetes, I'm like, that's something that I want to make sure I don't ever get type two diabetes. So, so I'm eating that way for preventative measures too. And I love, and I love vegetables. So, I mean, that it goes with the territory too. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a real vegetable lover too. And I think it's so fortunate because you would hate to have this personality where you hated what you were eating all the time. So that would be exactly. Yeah. I don't recommend it. So yeah. even so, like my my book, the plant based diabetes cookbook. I mean, it's a hundred percent plant based, but mm-hmm. it doesn't mean people that eat meats can't follow the recipes. So it's mm-hmm. it's really for anyone, and it's just a way to eat more plants wherever wherever you're starting from. Well, and one thing I have to say is that you really are not just doing what I've seen so many books do, which is uh, not diabetes books in particular, but often books to help people become more plant forward, they make everything just fake. So you have fake this and fake that. I mean, who wants to have their their tofu molded into a turkey to make, you know, tofurkey or whatever for Thanksgiving? I mean, that's just crazy because there's so many wonderful dishes in cuisines all from all over the world that are that are just delicious foods that just happen not to have meat or uh, animal products in them. And so why not just eat that, you know, with why, why I know some, fake food? Exactly. <laughs> I know sometimes people have this disconnect that they think it has to be a special food, a special vegan or plant-based food. But I try to remind people that a lot of the foods you're probably already eating fall into that category that you just aren't thinking about, like peanut butter and jelly sandwich and your spaghetti marinara. I mean, it's just some things are just naturally 100% plant-based unless you add meat to them. Right, right. So one of the dishes that I really loved is your French lentil salad. I thought that was just so delicious. And I like the idea of, as you say in the book, getting away from chickpeas. And not that I don't think chickpeas are wonderful, but there's so much variety out there in the different kinds of peas and beans that we can eat. And in, in the South, in New Orleans, we eat a lot of red beans. We eat red beans and rice. And it's an easy thing to just not put a ham bone in it or sausage or or whatever. And there you have this wonderful dish that is just part of the tradition of the city. And that's the thing that I, I love about it, that you can take the foods that are already here and and use those. And so one of the things I grew up on was this kind of Sicilian lentil soup that my grandmother used to make. And this, of course, is a totally different kind of presentation of lentils, but I I, I love it. I love it. These are green lentils and she used brown lentils because they kind of fall apart and they do a good job of making a soup. And green lentils right. don't, don't react quite the same way. But I, I, I love this whole thing. I love the shredded carrots in it. I love the dill fronds in it. I just think it was just delicious. So I want you to know I have cooked a lot of the things in here because I think 
it's important in a cookbook interview to have actually cooked the food. So was that something that you were already making? Does it come from a particular tradition where it's basically presented in this same way? I think this, I mean, the French lentil salad, I think was probably inspired by a chickpea salad that I grew up, I'm pretty sure that's what it was inspired by. And I'm like, okay, well, I have plenty of chickpea recipes already. And I eat like hummus, like nobody's business. So I'm like, there are some pulses that kind of get like, forgotten about. And I think lentils are one of those. Uh-huh. So that's where I'm pretty sure that's where that inspiration came from. And then because I like lemons, that's like my, my key culinary acid. I use that all the time. Oh, and I think that comes from my Lebanese upbringing too. Lemons is like at the top of the the food chain. So that's part of it. But the dill is not a Lebanese inspired ingredient. That was just because just looking at those ingredients, I'm like, what can I do besides making this exactly like a lot of the other recipes that might have lemon and mint or a scallion or something. And so that's a kind of doing a little bit more of a dill of a Greek inspiration, I guess, with the dill, French inspiration with the dill as well. So so, I just, I love herbs, all herbs. So when I, I, when I was making it, I didn't have any dill in the refrigerator, but I had fennel and I thought, yeah, well, fennel kind of looks like, you know, dill fronds. And so yeah. because I was using the, the fennel fronds, I decided to chop up some of the fennel into the salad to give it some crunch. And that it was, it was great. Now I know that Perfect. I've already changed your recipe. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I do that all the time. So, and I love fennel for that reason. Like a lot of recipes that might have celery for crunch. Uh-huh. I usually use fennel uh-huh. because it just, it has a little bit more unique flavor to it. And then you have those wonderful fronds that you're like, okay, now I have something else to, to use yeah. like an herb. So right. perfect. Yes. Yeah. Only yeah. someone with your culinary background would know how to do that. So I'm glad that you played with it like that. So it's something I would do. So one of my other questions, which has to do with an ingredient that I have not played around with a lot is riced cauliflower. So this seems to be something that everybody's doing in place of rice. And I'm you know, not trying to replace rice. So I haven't really played with it a whole lot, but you have the beans this, it's called skillet beans and greens with coconutty riced cauliflower. So tell me about that because I, I like the idea of caramelizing that rice cauliflower that is part of this recipe. And I thought, oh, that would actually taste really good. And and I could understand, especially if you are eating, if you are a white rice eater and you have diabetes, you really don't want to have that rice because, you know, it's kind of stripped of everything except the carbs. But we eat a lot of rice in, in Louisiana because we grow rice. And so, you know, I sort of grew up eating a lot of rice. It was my mother and my father. My mother was always making pasta because of the Sicilian side. My father grew up in Louisiana, so it was always rice. So there was this carb battle, you know, what is our carb going to be? And and every time my mother wanted something out of my father, I rice came to the table and I said, oh, I wonder what she wants. <laughs> anyway, but I I love this. And when I made it, I said, okay, this doesn't feel like a substitution. This just feels good, you know, 
Yeah. I like that. I'm glad that you felt that way. So it's, that's kind of my whole philosophy is there's no reason why you can't have rice um, when you have diabetes, but, uh, or for any, any, any healthy diet, but it's easy to get carried away with, with, with your portion. So the carbs go up really, really quickly. So with the cauliflower rice, which is basically just putting some cauliflower, chopped up cauliflower into a food processor and pulsing it until it looks like rice or until mm-hmm. it looks like couscous or whatever texture you're going for is basically to use that just as a a standalone ingredient or a side dish, not necessarily as a replacement for rice, but it can be mm-hmm. a replacement for rice, but then making sure that you're making it as flavorful as possible. So if it's just like steamed cauliflower, it's not going to be all that exciting. But then if you make sure that you get some browning on that, when you're like sauteing it, make sure you use a little bit of oil. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes people try to go so low fats for some reason, and actually fat can be a very good thing when it comes to making your food taste better, as well as helping you absorb those nutrients in your food. So, so we don't want to actually go too low on the, the fat scale. So definitely use some oil in the sauteing. And when you get brownness, that obviously is caramelization that adds flavor. So that's going to be one of the keys is making sure your food taste, especially healthy, healthy food, quote unquote, healthy food, taste as good as it possibly can. And don't shy away from seasonings. Salt, I mean, salt, of course, adds taste. There's no replacement for salt, but also try to play with some other seasonings. So like curry powder is something that just even a pinch of curry powder is just going to like flavor an entire bowl of cauliflower rice. And then I think in that, in that one, I think I do a little bit of a coconut milk at the end, if I'm not mistaken. So I have so many different versions of of coconut caramelized uh, cauliflower rice. And that just to give it a little bit of that kind of comfort comfort feel and taste that goes along with um, having like that savory comfort savory coconut in a dish. So, so yeah, so I, I'm glad that you uh, appreciated it for what it is. So I also really, I like the little tips that you give people. That was something that I thought was really terrific because I'm always, you know, when I, I wrote my first cookbook like a year ago, it came out a year ago and I, I was, I was so Oh, it was like pulling teeth out of me because I'm one of those cooks that just opens the refrigerator, cooks something with whatever there's there, and I never measure anything. And if somebody says, can you make that again? I usually can't. (laughs) And, but we had some, you know, family recipes. And so I wrote this book and I was like putting all the herbs in my hand and then measuring it afterwards to figure out, you know, whether it was how much many teaspoons. Not your typical style, but yes. (laughs) And, and so I found it really, really difficult because to me, somebody else's recipe is a suggestion. You know, it's just like it. And, and I did one time have to, I was a, a judge in a recipe contest. And so all of the judges were assigned like three recipes that you had to make precisely as they were written because that was an important way for us all to taste the food you couldn't change it you couldn't say oh this would be so much better with this or whatever you had to make it exactly the way it was and I even found that hard to do 
and and but we all tasted it all of the foods that we all made so that we could see whether these were were whether they worked and you know which was the best and all that and so on both ends of that i i found it really hard <laughs> to actually keep with the recipe that's why i could probably never work in a in a restaurant because you know all that's measured and and cost it out your your own style restaurant you would have to be in charge of everything that's right that's right so but but anyway you kind of give people permission to do that and I, I love that that you and then you tell people you know like how to store portobello mushrooms and all those kinds of things where people may not know especially if an ingredient is not something that they've used a lot before and so i I think that that is a definitely a, a plus for from your cookbook. And I also want to say that there's nothing in it that makes me say, oh, I don't want to eat that food because mm. it's, you know, sometimes when you're on a special diet, you just feel like your food is so foreign from everybody else's. And this doesn't feel that way at all. This just seems like good food. And I, I really appreciate that. That, yeah. that was definitely part of the goal. I want people to make sure that if they have someone with diabetes in the family, that everyone can eat the same food. It doesn't have to be like, I eat this and everyone else can eat this. It's like, it gets for everyone. So tell me when the change happened that, that people were learning that you could have a plant-based diet with diabetes. I mean, I remember I had a friend who had what they used to call juvenile diabetes. I think they call it type one diabetes today. So when we were children and she was always eating like cheese and tuna and just all these very, very protein based foods. And then the amount of vegetables or fruit or whatever she had was very restricted. And I I wonder when there was an understanding that you didn't have to eat that way. You know, I don't think there was an exact date or even year oh, or even yeah. several years. It's just been the research just wasn't there maybe 40, 30, 40 years ago. And now it is. And this is um, more so, like 60 years ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, it definitely wasn't there then. But I'm even thinking back to when I went to college. I went to college in the 80s. So how many years ago is that? A lot. That was a long time ago. And it was, I would say we weren't necessarily focused on plant-based eating um, when I went to college in, in the 80s. I think it was, yeah, the 80s. But but we were aware of the benefits and it was like we were kind of tinkering around with the concept of eating more plant-based with, with things like diabetes and especially with things like heart disease at the time was where like, okay, we definitely are seeing the benefit for heart disease, but the research just wasn't there yet with plant-based. And it just, I think getting the philosophy of, okay, carbs equals sugars equals diabetes. I think there was too much connecting those dots that aren't necessarily connected in precisely that way. There's so many other nuances that go go with the territory. Right. Well, I think I think it gives people a lot more flexibility too than Absolutely. they had before because it was a pretty rigid diet, you know, and she was always measuring and I have a half a cup of this and a quarter cup of that, you know. Yeah, there might be some people, yeah, if they if they're not well managed, they might have to do some of that for a period of time just to make sure that 
they're kind of getting in their uh, uh, the mental space, I guess, like, okay, this is what a half a cup looks like. This is what a portion size is probably supposed, supposed to be closer to. So, so sometimes people will have to be a little bit more restrictive, but in general, the, the philosophy is much more flexible than it, it used to be. Yes. Well, and I think probably they just, as you learn more, you can be more flexible because, and and even being able to measure your sugar levels and everything is more, is, is much more universal than it used to be. I mean, she, she was like pricking herself and doing all this stuff all day long, you know, and she would raise her hand and be allowed to leave the room to go do this and stuff. So I... I think all of that's probably much more either mechanized so that you don't actually have to even know what you're doing, but right. you actually had to learn this as a, as a child too. So she was may, maybe eight years old, you know, doing all this to herself. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely changed a lot. And I think that even the medication and such is, is changed a lot. So and that's, of course, that that made a huge impression on me as a child. That's what I remember, you know, and take forward as diabetes. And sure. it was very frightening because she would say, oh, I can't do this or I didn't bring enough of this to go play ball today, you know, or whatever, because we didn't know that it was something would happen and we had to go have an extra recess. And so she wouldn't have been prepared with whatever food she might've needed or whatever. So, I mean, it was, fortunately, she was a smart little girl and the teachers kind of gave her a little bit of leeway, you know, because she could explain what she needed, but it, I, I was very impressed. <laughs> yeah, I am too. Anyone that does something like that from a very young age, it's like, yeah, they become wise very early. So yeah, it's good as to them. Yes. So tell me what your favorite recipe was in here. Oh gosh. <laughs> That's always the million dollar question, which I like never have an answer to. I it probably would be every day it's something different that I think my favorite is. Uh-huh. So hmm, let me think. It's probably something desserty because I'm like in the dessert mood today. Okay. So, so for my desserts, it probably would have to be. I have the, uh, this recipe called nutty candy bar minis. Uh-huh. So where it's, it actually, you, it's kind of like creating this, you know, how some people make those energy balls that mm-hmm. have like some dates in them and some nuts. And so I kind of create that, but I turn it into like mini bar shape or uh, candy bar shapes or a little mini bars. And I actually do use some chocolate in that recipe. So you can use like a, a sugar-free recipe, a sugar-free chocolate, if you want, like something made with monk fruit or stevia, but even just a little bit of a real melted chocolate is fine. Just drizzled over the top, not doused in it, but kind of drizzled over the top. It just, you know, just having that little bite of something that gives you that sweetness, I think is, is always a good idea to help, you know, keep the enjoyment and everything. Yeah. My favorite, my favorite dried fruit is a dried fig. And I, I'm always got a stockpile of dry figs so that I can eat. Oh yes, those are heavenly. Yeah, I want. But it seems to me that they have a lot of fiber in them, so that's what I always tell myself. <laughs> Absolutely, they do. They do have a lot of fiber, so good for you. <laughs> well, I, I just really want to thank you, Jackie, for writing this book. 
it's it's a great cookbook whether you have diabetes or not and i think that that lets people know that you should not worry that you don't have diabetes and so you're not going to be interested in this book this book has some really great interesting recipes and i i give you lots of kudos for making the book like that and so it that people should just say oh look at this this is a good recipe and that's it so thanks so much Thank you so much, Liz. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, a part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Subscribe to this and other food and drink related podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to keep up with me, Liz Williams, you can subscribe to my Substack newsletter, also called Tip of the Tongue, For more information about this podcast, recipes, and just what is going on, I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.